Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you please turn with me again to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and look again at the 14th verse of this great chapter. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Well, congregation, let me ask you this question. Suppose it were the case that you all came here and you found that I was not here, that in fact I was late for the service and the elders, they, they had to begin the service without me and they began the service and you began to sing and I came in late after the reading of the law and got up here and, and explained to you why I was late. And I would say something like this, I'm, I'm sorry, congregation, I really tried to be here on time, but you see, as I was driving down here with my family, what happened was that uh, we actually hit a nail on the road and, and got a flat tire and, and uh, drove down the side of the road and really wanted to be here, so I, I took out um, the equipment. I tried to twist off that, that lug nut from the tire to put on a, a spare, and that lug nut, it actually rolled into the middle of the road. And, and you see, I walked out into the middle of the road to, to go retrieve it. And then when I looked up, there was a great big logging truck barreling down at 100 miles an hour, and it hit me. And you see, that's why I'm, I'm late. Well, I think that if I were to tell you a story like that, you would have to say, well, pastor, I... I don't want to accuse you of lying, but I can't say that I really believe that story because I don't understand. I don't understand how you could be impacted by a logging truck and yet be standing here completely unchanged by that. Well, I think you'd be, be valid for raising that objection. And that's a, a, an illustration that a, a famous evangelist has used that I've, I've often thought about because as he explains that, he, he often uh, contrasts it with this question. If we would not believe someone who would give such an explanation for being uh, late for church, then how is it that we sometimes accept that people have been impacted by the love of Jesus Christ when they have been completely unchanged. Now, if you think about the love of Christ, it is infinite, it is eternal, it is immense, it is unfathomably great and glorious. And should such a divine and supernatural love have an impact upon a soul, we ought to expect, should we not, that it would have an effect, that it would result in a change that they would not be unaffected and unchanged. Seems reasonable, does it not? Indeed, we can say this for sure, that everyone who has known something of the saving love of Jesus Christ, it will have an effect upon them. And this was also so for the Apostle Paul. He, in this uh, chapter, as we've been considering, has 
been giving a testimony of the Lord's grace in his own life and how it empowers him for ministry. And he's doing so for the purpose of uh, defying and refuting the false teachers that were afflicting the church in Corinth. And in the context of explaining how uh, God has so impacted him to do his duty for Christ's kingdom, he says these words in verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then were all dead. So Paul here, and including within him his statement here, are all true believers. He says the love of Christ constrains us. Now that word constrain is, is very interesting. It's the same word in Luke 22 that is used to describe how the Lord Jesus was constrained by the bonds when he was led away as a prisoner to be crucified. And so the idea here is sort of something that presses down upon you, constrains you, compels you, governs you. It's it's a beautiful word in the Greek, and it, it really does comprehend the effect that the love of Christ has upon a believing soul. They are constrained by this love. They are changed by this love to do certain things and to not do other things. The love of Christ constrains us. And why so, Paul? Well, because we thus judge. We judge. It's a judicial word here. It's a, a judgment and a verdict that follows from sound evidence. If you would be in a court, you know, don't you, that there are strict standards of logic and evidence. You can't just say, well, I think that person's guilty because I don't like the look of him. No, it has to be proved beyond all reasonable doubt that this person is guilty. And so it is. If someone would claim to be affected by the love of Christ, then it must follow from a sound, logical determination coming from the truth of the gospel. It is a judgment that comes from divine truth as it's apprehended by the mind and the heart and the will. That causes us to be changed and increasingly governed, increasingly constrained by the love of Christ in every area of life. There we have it, the constraining love of Christ. And I'd like to open up this verse uh, under that theme and consider three things. First, the person. Second, the demonstration. And third, the achievement person, the demonstration, the achievement. What shall we say about the person from whom this love comes? The love of Christ constrains us, and it barely, um, barely needs mentioning, but while it's grammatically possible, it's contextually impossible that this would be the love of a Christian for Christ. 
It's not the love that we have for Christ, but the love that Christ has for his people, which is spoken of here. This is love that is personal in nature. It comes from a person. It comes from this one whose glorious name, Christ, speaks of his coming as the Savior and mediator of sinners. It speaks of his endowment with all the power of the Holy Spirit of God, which was poured forth upon him beyond measure as the anointed one. And this is the one, this is the person whose love constrains the Christian. If we, if we would truly live as Christians, it does not do to just have a series of rules. We could lay it out and say, well, do this, don't do that. Stop doing this, start doing that. That's how it is with a lot of New Year's resolutions. You can resolve to do all sorts of things, and within a couple of weeks, it's not going to amount to anything. Why? Because there must be a power. There must be a motivation for real change. It must be the love of Christ that would come to constrain you if there would be transformation into true godliness. And it comes back to a revelation of personal love. It's the love of this one, the Christ that we are speaking of. Congregation, consider what a glorious person we speak of here. Consider the glory of the Christ. And by corollary, how great his love is coming from such a grand person. Whenever I, I think of the, the glory of the person of Christ, I'm reminded of something else Paul wrote in the book of Colossians, the first chapter. And he begins to unfold the riches of this glorious person there in verse 15. And he speaks of him like this. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Now, is that saying that Jesus Christ is a creature and he was born before all the other creatures and so he has sort of the, the highest rung on the ladder, so to speak. He's, he is a greater creature than all the others because he was made first. Well, certainly not, Paul. As he affirms everywhere, affirms the full deity of Christ, his eternal existence and generation, that he is indeed equal to the Father in all things. And yet, as the firstborn, it, it is speaking comparable to the old covenant way of speaking, where Israel is the firstborn of God because it is the greatest. It is the most eminent, the most lofty and glorious of nations. And so forth, and so also this one, the Christ, is greater than all of creation put together because he is the eternal Son of God. And he goes on. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Consider that. 
Consider everything in this wide world. Consider all the glories of nature, all the glories of art, all the, the glories of human ingenuity and talent and, and everything that you hold dear, all human loves and loyalties, your love for your family or your community or your spouse or your parents. And consider all the things that if, if you were to part with them today, you would, you would be gripped with sorrow. And now see that everything that is good, everything that is glorious in any way, whether in heaven or on the earth, it is all made by Christ. His genius, his wisdom, his power as the eternal creator, as the son of God, as the word of God through whom all things were made. It all traces back to his glory. It is all a pale shadow of his natural divine glory. But notice it says not only made by him, but also for him, for him as its purpose and goal. It has this as its definite Purpose, and that is to glorify the Son of God. And indeed, we can, we can say that for certain, that God is all things for his own glory, and, and the Son of God is all things for the glory of God. And so everything that, that takes place in all of history, even when it's hard to understand, when we see no purpose in it, we know it has a purpose. It's to glorify God. And I think there's even a further implication here. All things were created for him. Why? Because on that great day of days, when Jesus Christ returns in the glory of the clouds and his angels, heavenly multitudes with him to gather his elect and to destroy the wicked, then all of history will have built up to that perfect revelation of God's attributes, both his mercy in the elect and his wrath against the reprobate, all through and in Jesus Christ. All of history is about this glorious person. Everything about you, it's ultimately related to Jesus Christ. That is the glory of this person that we are speaking of. But consider also the grace of this person. Or if we would consider something of his immense glory in order to understand the greatness of his love, consider how the love that this glorious person sets upon his church is a totally undeserved love, a totally mysterious love that goes back even to the eternal decree of the triune God. And he says there, doesn't he? And he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of the cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So it's speaking of all the redeemed, all sinners who are saved from an eternity in hell, whether they be right now in heavenly glory as our, 
our dear departed loved ones in recent weeks, or whether here on the earth, those people who have been sanctified by the blood of Christ here on the earth, it all traces back to the love of this person. That this glorious creator and divine person should set his love upon a sinful human race. And out of that race to choose those who would be with him for eternity. To reconcile them unto the Father. To work out all things necessary for their salvation. To provide for every need for their eternal well-being. Such is the glorious love of Christ. Congregation, can you hear such things and be unmoved? What is your judgment? What is your verdict when you hear such things? Does it come into your mind? Do you think about this? Consider the love of Christ and ask yourself, is this constraining me? Is this this actually affecting my life? Is it actually affecting even my thinking? Can I go for a week or or a day or an hour without some thought that if not for this love of Jesus Christ, you would be condemned. But because of this life, all things are yours. If you would really think on that, if you would cause that to be the the very focal point of your thinking, if and if you would truly receive it as it is, as good news for sinners, as that which is to be Believed with certainty. Then how would it change? How would it change everything in your life? Well, that in the first place. We see the person. Now also see the demonstration. The demonstration. It says here, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Let's unfold that for a second. You see that Paul is not leaving it um, to our speculation to consider what the greatest demonstration and act of love of this divine person is. No, when he, his mind goes to consider this glorious person who loved him from eternity, he cannot but think of that exquisite demonstration of that love on the cross. One died for all. Considers how Christ died in love. He died in the most terrible way. He died under the curse of God. He died as one who was nailed to a tree. He died as one who was held forth, as one forsaken of both heaven above and earth beneath, lifted up on that dreaded tree, exposed in his nakedness, that we may be clothed, feeling all the agonies of hell, that we may know the blessings of heaven. And do you know that he went to that cross and died that death with a perfect love in his heart? You know, if someone would ask you to do something really unpleasant and say, okay, I need you to go through these things for me and I know you're going to hate it. 
but, but do it for me anyway. There's a good reason for it. Then maybe you could, could grin and bear. Maybe you could, could go through such obedience when you didn't want to, if you knew there was a good purpose. But you know, and I do, that within there would be all kind of chafing and rebellion. Why is this happening to me? Why me? Why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to pay such a high toll? Is that not the case with the crosses that Christ appoints for us? Christ says, I want you to bear this affliction, Christian. And you go through it, but inside there is grumbling, and there is murmuring, and there is doubting. But not so with his love. Not so. It was so undiminished, so pure. It went out to his father, and he said, Yes, Father, this is your will for me. And he said, Yes. Yes, I do it out of love. Love for your people, Father. And I consider them. I consider each one of them. Their faces, their names, their destinies, their sins, their faults, their shortcomings. And I do it gladly. I die for them personally. Jesus Christ stood in the gap. He died in the place of the ungodly. When we were yet without strength, Christ died for us. Do you hear that? Do you hear the, the, the power of that? Do you feel the weight of that on your soul? The death of this glorious person, spotless without sin, rendered in perfect obedience, in the place of a hell-deserving people. And can you be unmoved by it? Can you say, well, I will go on in sin. I will live in sin. The grace may abound. Why? Because ultimately I just want the benefits of Christ's death and I care nothing for his person. I can go on in these sins, adding unto the agonies of the Son of God who died for me as he must pay for every single morsel of sin with his blood and with his pain and with his agony i will add to the to the pains of christ by living in sin and though he loved me with a perfect love i will communicate hatred and and disdain for him oh may it never be Whenever we think of the sins that we dabble in and excuse and think of a small thing, consider that the least sin that we treat so lightly, it took the death of the Son of God to atone for. And if we indeed care nothing for that and and think that we are still a Christian, let me tell you something. If you are not constrained by that love, to fight against sin, then you know nothing of the love of Christ. We see not only the person and not only the demonstration, but consider as well that glorious, that glorious achievement. He says there in verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead. This love of Christ, which was expressed and demonstrated in his death, it brought about a glorious result. Christ achieved the object of his desire. He, He desired 
to bring about something by his death. He did not die in vain. The Son of God did not shed his blood to no effect. And it's interesting. I, I grew up in a kind of a church where there was a lot of good things about it. But that was kind of what the message was. And Christ died to make something possible. Basically, that Jesus died on that cross according to God's plan and purpose. And yet all that could have been accomplished and not a single person saved from hell. But really, the, the death of Christ was, was just sort of a sort of a way of just sort of pleading with sinners in a weak and beggarly way and saying, please, please believe. But if you don't, then we can do nothing. That was, was ultimately the, the message of the gospel as I heard it, that it was a love of Christ that was ultimately weak and ineffectual. That Christ's love was set upon everyone in an indifferent fashion. And each one had an equal opportunity to believe. And, and some were just especially smart, some especially wise and godly. And they put the pieces together and said, well, I guess this makes sense to me. I think I'll, I'll believe on Christ. And, and I guess the others who did not, well, they just didn't have what it took. But we abominate those things though we know that christian people sometimes uh, say things like that the truth of the gospel is far otherwise it says here in my bible because we thus judge that if one died for all then were all dead that when christ died that death was the death of his people that when we think of the death of christ if we are believers we ought to rightly regard that as our death and this is something that's spoken of in in different uh, places for example romans 5 which we read for example in verse 16 and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. And then verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And if you would read Romans 5 carefully, it's one of those chapters that you need to read a few times to really get it. But Paul is making a very careful argument. He's saying, consider your father Adam according to the flesh, this one from whom all of humanity came. Considering how Adam, in willful defiance against God, reached out and took that fruit and, and took a great big bite. He did so. Unto the, the death of his soul, though God, we trust, did redeem him in time. But he warranted eternal spiritual death by that act of sin. And he did that, not just as a private person. It didn't just affect him when he took that fruit, did it? No, when he took that fruit and took a bite, we were all there with him. All of his 
descendants by natural generation. They were regarded by God as represented within their head with Adam. Do you remember sitting in that and that garden and standing up and going over and grabbing that apple and taking a great big bite. Well, you don't remember it, but you were there. You did it. God regards that sin as your sin. Why? Because he regards all of humanity corporately in Adam by nature. We all inherit Adam's guilt. We all inherit the pollution of Adam's sin. That is the case. That is what the word of God teaches. And we dare not answer back to God when he speaks so clearly. But before you would cry out and say, that's not fair. Let me tell you something. The gospel is not fair. Do you want what is fair? Do you want what you deserve? Do you want what you have earned? Or do you want grace? Because where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. That act of disobedience, though imputed to his posterity, that act of, of, that act of disobedience by Adam imputed to his posterity, yet that act of obedience by Christ, where he died in our place, that, that was our death. That was our obedience. He gave it all to his God and Father so that we would have all of our debts canceled, so that we would have our sins, though red as scarlet, made as white as the snow that you see outside. And not because you earned it, not because you deserve it. It is all of grace. And that is the gospel. You know, it's interesting. If you read further on after chapter 5, in which we read, Paul goes on in this thought, and he he puts it this way there in um, Romans chapter 6. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So Paul is saying here, are you baptized? Have you been brought into the church of God through water? And you ought to consider this death that Christ died. And you ought to consider its import for you. Believer, think on that baptism. Whether you were those who remembered it because you, you were baptized as an older one or whether as God's word teaches that it is for both believers and their children that are, that are receiving that sign. Then you ought to consider what promises What promises are held forth there in that baptism? Even the promise of your death and mine in Jesus Christ. Think upon the death of Jesus Christ and consider what that means. Do you regard yourself as dead? As dead to the world? As dead to sin? As dead to your past lusts? As dead to self? 
well. Blessed are those who so die because for them, their future death, the passing of physical life, it is but an entrance into life eternal. But if you are not dead in Christ, then you will die the most terrible death that is possibly imaginable. While it is yet the day of grace, hear this voice of the gospel. Hear of the love of Christ for sinners. Flee into that love, receive it, and apply it unto your own soul. And be constrained by this 